This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Picture with me, if you will, India during British colonial rule. Let's say around the year 1865. Picture a government office in Bombay, as the city was then known. Two British officers are discussing an uprising that has been challenging Britain's sovereignty over the subcontinent. It's May, the hottest month in India. Temperatures have soared to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The officers are sweating. There's no air conditioning, of course, but they have a servant who brings them two ice-cold drinks. The officers take sips of their drinks and swirl the ice in their glasses. And at this moment, these cold drinks, dripping with condensation, feel like a small miracle to these colonialist wankers. But actually, the ice was a kind of miracle. That's our own little miracle, Sam Greenspan. Because in 1865, no one had refrigerators. It wouldn't be for another half century until they started appearing in the U.S., let alone India. Think about the ice in those officers' glasses. If you were to zoom out from those glasses, and out, and out, and then zoom in on the United States, on Boston, on a frozen lake in the dead of winter, there, you'd find men working. You see a lot of men and horses and a lot of activity going on, and then you'll see horse-drawn plows, pikes and, and pusher bars or poles. That's Rick Smith, amateur historian of the American ice trade. So all of these people together were on the lake uh, harvesting ice. Workers would cut ice out of a frozen pond, haul it to port, put it on a ship, and send it on a four-month journey to India. Any ice that British officers in colonial India would have had in their drinks would have started out on the top of a pond in Massachusetts. The tools of the ice trade varied by location, but generally it went like this. So the first step is to measure the ice. There's a small drill hole that's drilled in and and a measurement taken of how thick the ice is because it had to be at least 14 inches thick. 14 inches of ice was thick enough to hold the team of workers and horses that would be assembled starting usually the day after Christmas. The workers would come out onto the ice, clear off snow and debris, And then the horse-drawn ice plows would start to score the ice. And they would do this all over the ice until they had made a grid. A grid on the ice. They kind of make a checkerboard, let's say. Workers would use giant handsaws and ice pikes, basically big sticks with sharp ends, to break up the squares of ice so that they were floating in the water. A steam-powered conveyor belt would haul these cakes of ice out of the water, and they would go through a planer so each cake would become smooth and uniform. Then they'd be stacked in a nearby ice house, a large wooden structure that would hold tons of ice. Ice houses often had a railroad siding, so the ice could be loaded up onto a train and freighted off to the city. If you've seen the Disney movie Frozen, the ice harvesting scene is actually pretty accurate. At its peak, ice harvesting happened on lakes all over New England, New York, Michigan, In the Poconos region of northeastern Pennsylvania, it was at one time the major industry. My father actually worked on the ice harvesting back in the 1930s and 40s and even into the 50s. This entire area of the Poconos, that was pretty much the only thing that you could do in the wintertime for work. But now it's gone. It just disappeared entirely. It's a bit sad in a way that an industry melted away, as it were. 
Here to also remember the natural ice industry is Gavin Waitman. I'm Gavin Waitman. I live in London and I write social history books mainly. And uh, one of my most successful books was called The Frozen Water Trade. One edition of the book is actually titled The Frozen Water Trade, A True Story. Maybe because even Gavin's publishers thought the prospect of cutting frozen water out of American lakes and shipping it overseas sounded made up. But that is exactly what happened. Ice was being harvested from all over the American Northeast, packed onto railroad cars and ships, and sent out to the southern U.S., the Caribbean, and British colonists in India. The development of the international ice trade can be traced back to one person, a man who, by the end of his life, would come to be known as the Ice King, a guy named Frederick Tudor. He was the son of a moderately well-off Boston family. I think he'd be a very odd bloke. Sorry, I shouldn't use the word bloke. It's an English term. To meet him, I think he'd be a pretty eccentric bloke. Now, Tudor did not invent the idea of moving frozen water from one place to another. The practice actually began in Europe and South America well before Tudor's time. People would go up to the mountains and bring down ice and snow. Although Tudor might not have known about this, but he did know that New Englanders had a local tradition of cutting ice out of local lakes and using it to keep food cool. When Frederick Tudor was uh, a young man, farmers certainly did keep ice, which they collected in the winter. And then when they were taking, say, butter to market in the summer, they would take a bit of this ice in order to prevent it from melting. So it was used on a small scale in that way. But it wasn't put into drinks and that sort of thing. And it was very localized. When Tudor was in his early 20s, he and his brother William took a trip to the Caribbean. And he thought, these people need ice. Tudor's idea was that he was going to make his fortune because ice was a frozen asset of New England. It wasn't being used. And he felt he could sell it, particularly to countries which were very hot and could have no ice unless he delivered it to them from Boston lakes and ponds. And Bostonians thought he was absolutely crazy. But Tudor was convinced that this could work. Cocky, even. He wrote that selling ice would make him, quote, inevitably and unavoidably rich. Tudor set up shop on the banks of a pond called Fresh Pond in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just about two miles northwest of Harvard Square. And after he learned how to get ice out of the lake, Tudor started looking for new ways to keep ice frozen. Frederick Tudor experimented with all sorts of insulating materials, because remember, this was more than 100 years before refrigerators began appearing in people's houses. He discovered that sawdust was a remarkably good insulator, and he could get it for next to nothing from lumber mills in Maine. Kept inside of a dry ice house and packed with sawdust, Tudor would eventually discover that he could keep ice stable for years. So all Tudor had to do was get the ice onto a ship and send it to hotter climates. His first attempt to sell ice uh, outside Boston was made with a little shipment to Martinique. Shippers didn't want to ship ice. It seemed the most ridiculous cargo. Um, So he fitted out a ship himself. The ice made it to the Caribbean no problem, but Martinique was not equipped to deal with a temperature-sensitive product that literally melts into something worthless without the right infrastructure. It was a bit of a failure, really, um, because when it got to Martinique, no one knew how to keep ice. He wrote a rather amusing entry in his diary about the fact that people 
wrapped their piece of ice in blankets and wandered off and wondered why it had disappeared when they got home. The newspapers ridiculed Tudor. But Tudor would not be discouraged. He went back to the Caribbean and to the southern United States and showed people there how to build more effective ice houses. And it worked. Frozen water carved out of lakes and ponds was being transported hundreds to thousands of miles. He had a rough time getting it going. He went bankrupt a couple of times, but he did manage it in the end. (laughs) But for all of Tudor's innovation in insulation and supply chain logistics, his true genius was as a marketer. Before Tudor, ice had mostly just been used to preserve foodstuffs. Frederick Tudor pioneered the radical idea of putting ice into beverages. When you first drink a cold drink like that, when you're not used to it, it's, it's quite a shock, actually. So he had to persuade people that what he was selling was a luxury and worth paying for. Tudor would tout his ice around to bars and so on, offer it for free, say, look, try this, try that. He had to persuade people that what he was selling was going to improve their lives, if you like. It wasn't self-evident to them. The first one, as they say, is always free. Tudor wrote, Once people had tried chilled drinks, they were hooked and would no longer tolerate tepid water. He was a bit like a sort of drug pusher. And like any drug pusher, Tudor soon found himself with a lot of competition. Rival ice companies set up shop on Tudor's fresh pond and staked a claim to it. In fact, they had to go get a Harvard professor to devise a map carving up boundaries for the ice rights of different parties all on the same lake. And of course, it wasn't just fresh pond, because now any body of water that was frozen thick enough to support the weight of an ice harvesting crew was a hot commodity. Ice began to get harvested all over New England and New York, Pennsylvania, and Canada. One of Tudor's competitors, the Wenham Lake Ice Company, based out of Wenham Lake, about 30 miles north of Boston, Somehow they managed to persuade their buyers that their ice was premium product. Ice from Wenham Lake would be sold as especially pure. It was nonsense, really, but it was a way of marketing. You know, our our ice is better than yours. Legend has it that Queen Victoria would only use Wenham Lake ice. And maybe you're thinking, why would England need to import ice all the way from North America when there are plenty of really cold places that are closer? Norway wondered the same thing. Norwegian businessmen tried breaking into the ice biz, even going so far as to rename one of their lakes Wenham Lake in an attempt to profit from the Wenham Lake Ice Company's prestige and name recognition. Frederick Tudor's company never made a play for the UK ice market, which turned out to be a pretty good business move because ice never really took off in England. Even in the 20th century, American GIs in England were shocked to find nothing but warm beer. And there were several in the Air Force who said they would put their drinks in the back of a plane and fly it to about 25,000 feet, where it would chill. (laughs) Chill a little bit, at least. But there's one place where Brits could not get enough ice. India. So this is three months in the hold of a ship, twice across the equator. So it was quite a remarkable uh, survival rate for the ice, which was eventually unloaded in Bombay, as it was called then, Madras, and Calcutta. Despite all this, Frederick Tudor never really became inevitably and unavoidably rich, like he'd predicted. His whole life, he was in and out of debt, and debtor's prisons. And he eventually became not particularly wealthy, but well enough off, and he bought an estate uh, outside Boston, 
and uh, lived a kind of rural life. But still, it wouldn't be until 40 years after Tudor's death, squarely in the 20th century, that the natural ice industry began to shift. The earliest refrigerators started appearing in the 19-teens, but the early models broke all the time. The physics of cooling proved much harder to master than heating. And of course, you had to have electricity, which most homes in the U.S. didn't have until the 1920s. Slowly but surely, the technology kept improving, and consumers began to have a choice of getting natural ice scraped off the top of a frozen pond, or ice made in a factory, where the water could be better controlled and filtered which started to get more important because... As the towns grew, as buildings grew up around Fresh Pond and the other lakes that were used for supply, sewage would get into them. It became a health hazard. Uh, and this became a great problem for the naturalized industry. And to make matters worse for the naturalized trade, the Northeast experienced a spate of unusually warm winters. The ponds that had been supplying the world's ice weren't freezing as well. The newspapers were calling it an ice famine. The supply region shifted northward towards Maine, where the climate was colder and the water less polluted. But by then, the writing was on the wall. The natural ice trade was on its way out in the 1920s, but hung on in some places, especially rural places, until as late as the 1950s. And ice harvests still happen in some places. There's a renewed interest in the tradition. In Pennsylvania and all over New England, there are some ice harvest revivals. One. But, you know, with some updated tools, and it's all more for heritage value. Two. All right. It's not like people are still putting frozen pond water in their drinks. But as for the actual site where all of this started, Fresh Pond in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the ice trade might as well have never existed. When I was researching this story, I stayed up in Cambridge and I went out to Fresh Pond. People were jogging around the, the lake and I, they, they were confronted by me, this completely mad Englishman saying, excuse me, do you know that this ice used to be transported to India from this pond? And they looked at me as if I was completely mad. So at Fresh Pond, there's no, there's no plaque or anything? No. No. Cambridge, Massachusetts has finally found something to not commemorate with a plaque. Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan with Katie Mingle, Avery Truffman, Kurt Colstead, Delaney Hall, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks to Rosie Weinberg, Stein Ivar Loteeda, and Dylan Garrett-Smith who reached out to us about this story. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 
We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. The show's Twitter is at 99PIorg, and my Twitter is at RomanMars. Make sure you tag me if you have a picture of a coin that you'd like to share. We're all on Instagram, Tumblr, and Spotify, too. But this week, your mission is to spend some quality time with the new, beautiful 99PI.org. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.